Father, we come before you as our only hope, our only hope in life and death is in you, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Lord, you have provided a way for us to find freedom, for us to find salvation, for us to find grace and mercy, and you have done it through Jesus Christ, your Son. And so we come before you this morning to celebrate this living hope that we have through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, and we come before you in celebration for who you are and what you've done. We thank you, our great and mighty God, and it's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. And we're going to be looking at Acts chapter 2. And so if you have your Bibles, you can turn to Acts chapter 2. And uh, what we're going to be looking at this morning is one of the very first times in history that Easter is preached as a sermon. And we found it in the book of Acts. Now, let's do a little Bible trivia right now. Um, who knows who preached the very first Easter sermon? Any guesses? Paul, Peter? Peter. Good job. And so we're going to look at a little bit of Peter. And we're going to look at this beautiful sermon that he has. Um, but I want to, first of all, just look at this life of Peter because the fact that we see Peter preaching the very first sermon on resurrection is quite profound, actually. Because let's just process for a second who Peter is. Uh, before Peter met Jesus, uh, what was Peter up to? What was his occupation? Does anyone know? Peter was a fisherman, right? And so Peter sort of has this monotonous, sort of mundane, not a huge, highly paying job. Um, this was Peter's life that was literally set before him. And I'm sure Peter would have had a lot of questions, existential questions about, is this really all there is to life? Am I really just going to fish and that's going to be my existence? Now, for some of you, that sort of sounds like an amazing existence, doesn't it? Just sort of sitting around, fishing every day. Anyone sort of feel like that? A few of you enjoy fishing, right? Uh, I grew up on Vancouver Island, and I actually thought my life would just entail becoming a commercial fisherman. I, I thought that's the path that my life was going towards. I was excited for it. But I remember one day, me and my sister sort of had this not traumatic but disappointing event where we were fishing off the docks one day, and this crabbing boat comes in, and this guy comes to us and says, hey, do you and your sister want to work for us? You can unload a bunch of crates, and we'll pay you some money. And we agreed on how much they were going to pay us. And me and my sister did all this work. Here we are, little kids, and we're carrying like 50-pound crates of crabs and supplies and stuff. We worked for about two, three hours, and then we were finally done. And guess what this guy did to us? He didn't pay us what he said he would. <laughs> And so me and my sister just felt really ripped off, and I remember making an inner vow that day. I said, I'm never going to work for people like this. And that's how I never became a commercial fisherman. And so God had different plans for my life, obviously. But I I'm sure Peter would have had some of those same experiences where he would have felt like, you know what, is this really all there is to life? I'm sure he would have got screwed over many times. I'm sure there was hard times in his life where even dealing with storms and dealing with not catching fish, where he just said, is this really all there is to life? And what's mind-blowing when we look at the story of Peter 
is Peter sort of has this monotonous job. He's probably asking all these existential questions about what life is all about. And yet Jesus enters into his life. And does Jesus change things in the life of Peter? Let's say that with a little more conviction. Does Jesus change things in the life of Peter? In an insane way. In a profound way. I mean, literally, as Peter's working the shores, Jesus comes up to him, and Jesus says, you know what, Peter, I have a new job for you. You are now going to be a fisher of what? A fisher of men. And so Jesus says, Peter, I want you to join in my mission of renewal and reconciliation of all of creation. I want you to be part of the mission of Jesus Christ. And what's fascinating to me is later on we see Peter preaching a sermon like this. And Peter becomes one of the earliest founders and apostles of the church who literally starts a movement that lasts for over 2,000 years. Isn't that profound to think about? We have some unknown, obscure fisherman in the Sea of Galilee who becomes part of a movement that has literally transformed the world for the last 2,000 years to the point where we are talking about him today. That is what following Jesus does. It puts you on this path for God to use you in mighty and profound ways no matter who you are. And some of us need to hear that today because some of us think about following Jesus and yet it hasn't completely transformed us. It hasn't absolutely transformed the world around us and yet this is what God does through people even like Peter. And so Peter, uh, he gets to witness and experience all these wonderful things about Jesus. And as he's walking with Jesus and experiencing life with Jesus, what were some of the events and experiences do you think that Peter had? That wasn't a hypothetical question. <laughs> what were some of the experiences that you think Peter had with Jesus? What do you think he got to witness? Yeah, his, his mother-in-law healed, right? What are some other things? He saw Jesus walking on the water. This... Transfiguration on the mountain, he saw healings, he saw miracles, he saw Jesus preaching and teaching in a way that no one else would ever have. I mean, Matthew, the Gospel of Matthew tells us that Jesus preached as one who had, and he, remember from the Gospel of Matthew, as one who had authority, right? Peter witnessed Jesus doing some mind-blowing things. And it comes to the point where even in Peter's life, Jesus comes to him and he says, Peter, who do you say that I am? And Peter responds by saying, well, Jesus, I believe that you are the Christ, the Messiah. In other words, the one that God was working and planning to renew and restore all of creation. And he says, I believe you are the Christ, the Son of God. Peter was mind blown about who Jesus was. He was absolutely transformed. But something horrible happened in the life of Peter. As he was following Jesus and as he was so excited and amped up for what Jesus was doing, Jesus would tell him something that would absolutely crush him. And Peter was with the disciples and Jesus comes to them and he says, I'm going somewhere that you guys are not going to understand. I'm going to Jerusalem. And what was going to happen in Jerusalem, church? 
would die. Jesus was going to be betrayed. Jesus was going to be rejected. He was going to be mocked and scorned. And Jesus was literally walking a path to crucifixion. Did the disciples understand any of that? No, they didn't get it at all. They said, Jesus, this can't be right. This can't be part of the plan of God. This can't be how God is exercising and bringing in his kingdom. This doesn't make sense at all. And so Peter and the disciples were so confused, they couldn't comprehend. They couldn't understand how this was the plan of God. And so even as Jesus goes to the cross, and as Jesus is crucified, we see Peter being confronted by a little girl. And she comes to Peter and she says, hey, aren't you one of the followers of Jesus? And how does Peter respond? I don't know him. I have no relationship to him. And Peter literally rejects Christ because he couldn't comprehend that this could be an act of God on the cross. And yet, there's something that changes everything. Good Friday, we examined and we contemplated and we confessed over the cross the death of Jesus to pay a debt for our sins that we owed so that we could find freedom and salvation and restored relationship in God. Three days later, here we are Sunday morning, and what are we celebrating, church? The victory of the resurrection. And do you know what transformed Peter's life? It was the resurrection. He, he comes from rejecting and denying Jesus, and, and three days later, after he witnesses the resurrection, he was one of the eyewitnesses, as, as Paul reminds us in 1 Corinthians 15, he was one of the eyewitnesses that were literally viewed the resurrected Christ, and he got to see and witness the resurrection, and what did it do in Peter's life? It absolutely transformed everything, to the point where Peter now becomes the very first person to preach a sermon on Jesus. And I want to look at a little bit with us, just a portion of what Peter says. And so let's turn our Bibles to Acts 2, verses 22 to 24, and, and let's contemplate this passage together. Now here's what Peter says. This, this is a small portion of his sermon but I think it's extremely beautiful for us to comprehend this morning. And Peter says this, verse 22. He says, Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works, and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know. Verse 23. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. You crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. Amen, church? 
What a powerful statement. I, I want us just to process some of what's going on. And so what, what is Peter trying to do here? Peter is trying to make it incredibly clear that the life, death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus was no ordinary event. And that Jesus is no ordinary person. This is something incredibly unique in all of history. This is something compre- compre- uh, completely unique for anything. I mean, for all of us, we can comprehend this. Uh, every religion has sort of a main leader. Are all of them dead? All of them are dead. Is Muhammad dead? Who else is dead? Is Krishna dead? Is Buddha dead? Is Joseph Smith dead even? We, we, we could go list and list and list of all these religious movements whose leaders are dead. And what Peter is saying is there is an empty grave. And there are our witnesses who testify that Jesus Christ is alive. That is unique, amen? 100% unique. That's what Peter wants to frame in our mind. But, but then he takes us somewhere. He says the question becomes then is if Jesus, for him to be resurrected, he have to die. And he said, well, who killed Jesus? And, and where was God in all of this plan? And so first of all, Peter says, you know what, from a worldly perspective, from a human history perspective, who killed Jesus? Who are some of the people that was involved in the crucifixion of Jesus? Let's just list them off. Who do we got? We got the Romans. Who else? We got the Jewish leaders, so Sanhedrin, Pharisees. Who else we got? Who betrayed Jesus? We got Judas, right? We have all those who falsely testified against him in court. We have all these human factors that come into the crucifixion of Jesus. Now what's fascinating is, again, every historian doesn't deny the crucifixion of Jesus. What's fascinating, though, is what is the reason behind it? And and Peter makes this case. He says, you know what? It, It wasn't just human responsibility. Yes, it was the wickedness, it was the lawlessness of people that crucified Jesus, but it was much more than that. And Peter says this. He says, this Jesus was delivered up, in other words, delivered to his death, according to what? According to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. Isn't that fascinating? That this was, from God's perspective, his plan all along. This is what he was looking at accomplishing. This is what history was moving towards. This is what even Jesus in his own life told the disciples. This is the path that I'm walking. This was the purpose to which the mission of Jesus came into fruition. Everything was leading towards the cross. And I'm sure there would have been many bystanders standing at the foot of the cross, even beyond what we read in the historical records of the New Testament, who would have been wondering and contemplating, how could this be the plan of God? How could this be what history was moving towards? And yet we absolutely see that this was God's plan, God in His divine foreknowledge. Isn't that a beautiful, comforting thought that God has foreknowledge? 
Because what do we have? Do we have any foreknowledge? <laughs> we don't even know what's going to happen this afternoon. We don't want it to happen tonight. We don't know what's going to happen tomorrow. We don't know what's going to happen five years from now. None of us have a comprehension of the future. And yet God in his wisdom, in his foreknowledge, knows everything. So we don't always need to know what tomorrow brings. We just need to know the God that knows what tomorrow brings and trust him in his plan, in his definite plan. And so here's the beauty. We, we look at the cross then, and Peter says, you know what, this was part of the purpose of God. This was in the very definite plan of God. And we begin to ask the question, well, how could the cross be part of the plan of God? But, but let's just comprehend this for a second. We, we look at the cross, and we see this image of death and violence and destruction, and yet God uses this image and death of Christ to bring us to Sunday morning, which is the image of victory, of celebration, of life. And, and here's the beauty of God's plan. God has this plan, and, and He takes us from this deserved damnation, and He gives us a plan of salvation. God has this plan where He takes our sin and He gives us His righteousness. God has this plan where He takes our death and He gives us life. God has this plan where He takes our wrath and gives us grace. God has this plan where He takes our slavery and gives us freedom. God has this plan where He takes our rebellion and gives us reconciliation. Is that not the most glorious good news we could ever hear, church? This is the beauty of the resurrection, and there's a plan. God has a plan. Even though we may not understand it or fully comprehend it, we can be rest assured that God is working all things together for His good and for His glory. This is the beauty of the resurrection. And so Peter builds on this thought. It's this fascinating image that Peter gives then in verse 24. It says, God raised him up, loosening what? Loosing the pangs of death. What is this talking about? What are the pangs of death? Any guesses? Any guesses what imagery this is? It's this image of childbirth. It's this image of labor pains. Uh, why is Peter talking about childbirth and labor pains when he's talking about the resurrection? Well, he's saying that death could not hold on to Jesus any more than a pregnant woman can hold on to her unborn baby when birth is coming. And, and this is a fascinating, beautiful reality. And, and it made me think about Rebecca and I as well with our birth experiences. I mean, who, who here remembers, for you women, of course not you men, who remembers your birth experience, right? Who here wishes they didn't remember their birth experience? <laughs> but many of you remember when that day came, there was nothing you could do to hold it back, right? I remember with Rebecca when we had Alethea, me and the nurse and the doctor, we kept telling her, don't push yet, don't push yet, wait, right? Who had a nagging husband over them telling them that, right? Don't push yet. Wait. But everything in your body was saying, this baby can't stay in me any longer. It needs to get out. 
and you push, right? And this is the image of Christ in the tomb. That everything in creation, everything of who Jesus was as the resurrection and the life, death literally could not hold him. He was literally forced out of the tomb. That's the imagery that Peter is giving us here. It's this beautiful imagery. What does this mean? It means death has lost all authority over Jesus. It could not hold him. It never could hold him. It never had power over him. It never had a hope against him. Jesus was coming out of that grave no matter what. Amen, church? That is what we hope for. Now, here's the beauty. Jesus' victory over death becomes our victory. Paul in Romans 6 talks about now if we died with Christ, believe that we will also live with Him. Meaning that when we place our faith and our trust in the finished work of Jesus on the cross for our salvation and we die to our sin, we are united with Christ to the point now we are raised to life with Him. And just as the power of death had nothing on Jesus, the power of death has nothing on us. Amen? This is the resurrection hope that we believe. And this becomes this beautiful comfort in the face of death. I mean, it's fascinating to me. We've been a year, more than a year now, where the concept of death has been at the forefront of our culture, isn't it? Everything is surrounded by this confrontation of the reality of death before us. And so much of our existence has been avoiding this question of the reality of death. But at the end of the day, um, who here is going to face death? All of us. Each and every one of us. Death has the greatest sting over our lives. This is something, no matter how much we try to have control in this life, no matter how much authority and power we try to have over circumstances, there is one thing we have absolutely no power and authority over, and that is the reality of death. That is our greatest threat against us. That is the greatest evil to come upon us, and yet the beauty of the resurrection is when we find ourselves united and in Christ, it absolutely loses all of its power. And so death becomes this forefront that God himself deals with. I think for my own life, one of the the greatest faces of of death that I've had in these recent years has been um, two Novembers ago, or just over a year now, of my father being in, in ICU. And many of you have been praying for that situation, and I appreciate it. And I was reflecting on it once again this week as I was working through this passage of this time where I spent with my dad. Basically, my dad got sent into an ICU intensive care unit in Kelowna. He was fighting for his life. Um, I was able to fly down, down to see him. The board granted me a few days off, which was a blessing. And I flew down to see my dad. And the first horrific thing that happened on my way down there is I was in such a rush to get there, I didn't bring my passport. I only had my license. And guess what? My license was like a couple weeks expired. I didn't even know. And so they didn't even let me on the plane. 
I said, my dad is dying. And they're like, oh, sorry, you don't have the right ID. I was like, it's only two weeks expired. But anyway, I had to drive all the way back home, grab my passport, book a new flight, go back to Edmonton. It was, it was chaos. But I finally got there later that night. And I was sitting with my dad in the room. And he wasn't very responsive. I was just talking to the, some of the nurses as what's going on. There was all these massive complications. And I remember just saying, you know what, I wanted to stay that night, but they wouldn't let me. They wouldn't let me stay overnight, so I went to some family friends. And I remembered all I could do that night was just pray. We have a certain amount of hope in what our medical um, facilities and doctors and nurses are capable of. And that's a beautiful thing that God has blessed us with in this culture. But at the end of the day, there's, there's a hope that needs to come beyond that. And so I prayed to God that night and I said, God, I, I prayed for healing. I prayed for life for my dad. I prayed that he would survive the night. And Lord willing, and God blessed him and he did survive the night. And I got there the next morning and I began to talk to him. And what he went through that night was absolutely mind-blowing. Uh, he was having visions. He was having spiritual oppression over him. He had this experience where he was literally felt his body being sucked into the muck and as if death was overtaking him. And then he opened up to this light of, of God saving him and God uh, restoring his life. He had all these other visions, just too, way too wild of stuff to get into right now. So we had a, a deep, long conversation about processing life and death and what was going on and what God's plan was for him. And I remember as we were processing, and even my own time in the, the days following, I began to reflect more on the reality of death and what the resurrection actually means. And I was reminded that I was always praying for my dad. There was two answers to every prayer. I was praying that he would live. I was praying that he would be healed. I was praying that he would get to meet his next granddaughter, that he would get to see our family once again. Well, all these prayers, right? And God began to remind me of something. He reminded me of the reality of resurrection and the hope that that brings. And here's the, the wonderful reality that resurrection brings. My dad was either going to live or he was going to live, amen? You get what I'm saying? He was either going to continue life in this world or he has the hope of resurrection for all of eternity. He was either going to be healed, which he still isn't completely healed. He's bedridden for 23 hours out of the day in a hospital bed. But you know what? There's hope that he will experience eternal healing, Amen? Either he was going to spend more time with our family in this world, or guess what? We get to spend more time together for eternity. E either he was going to be cared for by palliative care nurses and my mom and our family through this time, or he was going to be carried or and cared for by the saints for all of eternity, right? Either way, the answer is yes. No matter what side, because of the resurrection, the answer is yes. Yes, I will heal. Yes, I will bring life. Yes, I will join you with family. Yes, I will care for you 
Yes, you will get to experience the joy of my presence for eternity. That's the beauty of resurrection. And our hope and our life is wrapped up in the beauty of a God of resurrection. Our hope is wrapped up in a God that turns death into life. Amen? This is where our hope is wrapped up. And this is what we need to know. This, this is what we have to comprehend today. Is that the comprehension of the cross and resurrection means something very important for us. It means that the beauty of being a Christian is that death is defeated for us, amen? And the implication for that is that death can only make us more glorious and wonderful than we already are now, amen? Do you get that? Death can only make life better. The worst thing that can happen to us in this life with death is the best thing that can happen to us, amen? That's the reality of what we celebrate today. And this is why Paul, he has this beautiful chapter on resurrection theology in verse or chapter 15 of 1 Corinthians. And he ends this chapter with this beautiful, almost mockery of death. And, and Paul begins to cry and he says, O death, where is thy sting? O grave, where is your victory? And he's mocking death. Why? Because Jesus Christ is alive. Christ has won the victory not just for himself, but for all of creation. For us who fall on our knees in obedience and faithfulness to Jesus Christ, we have that kind of confidence. We have the confidence that can literally mock death itself. This is the beauty and joy of being a Christian. Amen? the certainty, the hope that the worst thing in this life that could happen to us, God can use it to the best thing that could ever happen to us. That is what we celebrate today. And so in response to this, what we're going to do, just in a time to respond to this beautiful reality of resurrection, is we're going to take this cross and as you already see, the the morning 9 a.m. service already started this beauty. But we're going to take the cross, which is this picture of defeat, this picture of death, this picture of violence. And what we're going to do is the exact same thing that God did with it. He takes this picture of death and he turns it into a picture of life. He takes this picture of destruction and he turns it into a picture of renewal. He, he takes this picture of grave and he takes it into a picture of growth and life. And so that's what we're going to celebrate. And so I'm going to invite you uh, just to rise for a second. And, and I'm going to invite you just to, to pray with me. And as we're done praying, I, I'm going to call upon you to come and grab a carnation. And all you're going to do is take this carnation and you're going to come up to the cross and you're just going to slip it in there. And in doing so, you're proclaiming that God used the greatest defeat in our life, death. And he turns it into a picture of life, of eternal life with God, our creator. And so let me pray and then I'm going to invite you to do that. Gracious Father, First of all, we come to you, confessing our need for the cross, confessing our need for our sins to be forgiven, 
And Lord Jesus, we thank you that you paid a debt that we owed to you because of our sin, because of our rebellion against you, because we desire to live life in our own way, detached and against our Creator. And yet you have made a way through the crucifixion that we can be restored in relationship with you. And Lord, not only that, not only do you store relationship through the cross, but Lord, you bring us to the picture of resurrection. That you have promised us eternity of life spent with you. You have promised the forgiveness of sins and the eternity of life and the joyous presence that is yours. And so Lord, we come before you today in hearts of celebration, in hearts of worship, because you are a God who is worthy to be praised. We celebrate you by taking this picture of death and celebrating the life that only you could bring, a gracious and merciful God. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen, church? Amen.